All right, everyone. Um, good evening. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Karen Smith, and I'm a professor in the International Relations Department here at the LSC, uh, and I'm also head of, uh, the, of the Department of International Relations. So tonight's lecture is hosted by the IR Department, which since July last year has been located in this stunning uh, new uh, building. Uh, and this lecture forms part of the LSE Shape the World series, which celebrates the completion of the building. The building is highly sustainable, which is kind of resonates with the, the, the topic of tonight's uh, lecture, uh, and was designed by architects Roger Sterk, Harbor, and Partners. Um, and I can tell you that some of the, um, the views of London from the top floors are absolutely um, breathtaking. Um, over the term, there are going to be several more lectures in this Shape the World series celebrating this uh, opening of this building, uh, if you can check the website for future lectures. Uh, but also from the 2nd to the 7th of March, there's going to be a week-long festival on the theme of Shape the World, and further information can also be found uh, on, online. The International Relations uh, Department at the LSC is the oldest and one of the largest IR departments in the world. We have about 500 students at undergraduate MSc and PhD levels and about 40 uh, faculty members. We've always been very strongly international in character and today the majority of our graduate students, a good proportion of our undergraduates and members of the faculty are drawn from Europe, North America and further afield. We're currently working on diversifying our student body and faculty, and we look forward to celebrating our 100th anniversary later this decade. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, I have to give you a few housekeeping issues. The fire assembly point for the building is outside the Sawsweet Hawk building, which is the Students' Union building. I mean, just, you know leave by there and get out of the building and walk as far as possible you can uh, towards the Students Union building, which is also a fabulously designed building. Um, the event is being recorded and we hope that a podcast of the event will be made online. Um, please turn your mobile phone to silent to avoid disrupting the event. Apparently we say silent because if you tweet, we like what do you say, tweeters? Um, and if you wish to tweet about the event, please use the hashtag part of LSC altogether. Uh, there will be a Q&A session uh, after the lecture, um, uh, so uh, hold your questions until then. So now on to the best part, which is introducing our speaker tonight, Professor Nita Crawford. She's professor and chair of the, of the Department of Political Science at Boston University, and she holds a PhD in political science from MIT, also well, across the river from uh, Boston. Now, Professor Crawford is a renowned scholar of international relations theory, international ethics, and normative change. In 2018, she received the Distinguished Scholar Award from the International Ethics Se uh, Section of the International Studies Association. She's the author of more than four dozen academic articles, and her books include Argument and Change in World Politics, Ethics, Decolonization, and Humanitarian Intervention, which has been pub was published with uh, Cambridge University Press, and Accountability for Killing, Moral Responsibility for Collateral Damage in America's Post-9-11 Wars, published with Oxford University Press. We're delighted that Nita has come to give this lecture celebrating uh, the department's uh, new home. 
Uh, she is speaking on the Pentagon's greenhouse gas emissions, climate change, and war. So please join me in welcoming Nita to the LSC. Thank you, Professor Smith. Um, I'm a little late for Megxit, <laughs> but I've made it for Brexit. <laughs> uh, otherwise, happy to be here. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm really sorry I missed Megxit. Um, I became interested in the Pentagon's greenhouse gas emissions when two of my intellectual interests converged. One was that I co-teach a course on climate change at the Honors College at Boston University with two scientists and two humanists. So I'm the only social scientist, so nobody can argue with me, which is great. And I was working on a lecture as uh, the background for which I wanted to understand the Pentagon's greenhouse gas emissions. So I found that there was no way to get that data at some handy location. Thank you. And um, so then I had to spend two weeks over spring break doing the math, and I did it. So then I decided, well, I need to write a whole paper. I, I can't just get one number. I need to do a whole paper, and that's where this went. So this is, uh, then became part of the Cost of War Project, of which I'm a co-director. And the Cost of War Project, you can find it at costofwar.org, is um, helping people understand the costs and consequences of the US post 9-11 wars. This year, we've launched the 20 Years of War Project. We're not quite at 20 years, but it takes us a while to write the papers to get us to 20 years. And we'll be putting out new, new work uh, to think about the costs and consequences of war, these wars in particular. But if you want the bottom line, at the moment we're a little bit over $6 trillion that the U.S. has spent and obligated for the post-9-11 wars, and about 800,000 people have been killed directly by bombs and bullets and fire. And we don't have a good number for the indirect death and immiseration. Okay, so now, just so you know where I'm going today, I'll first give you the context for my argument about the Pentagon and greenhouse gas emissions, starting with the science of climate change, then looking at the history of U.S. military fuel use. Then the bulk of the talk will be about U.S. military greenhouse gas emissions and how to think about fuel and climate change. Then I'll fit these issues together, trying to think about how uh, and whether U.S. strategy makes sense. So then I'm going to, so what I'm doing is I'm starting big, I get quite small, and then I go big again. So moving out. So um, how many of you are familiar with the basic science of climate change? Just raise your hand. That's great. Um, who's not? Don't be shy. Okay, so it's going to be a, hopefully a comprehensible intro for people who don't know the science, but here's the, don't be shocked, here's a chart. Okay, this is greenhouse U.S., uh, I'm sorry, world greenhouse gas emissions for the last 2,000 years, and what you see here is the great spike in emissions of greenhouse gases, that is heat-trapping gases, in the last 150 years. The big spike actually happening quite recently. 
So now you see that this is correlated with uh, a rise in surface temperatures on the Earth. So the IPCC has documented this, um, and what you see in the black, the black line is actual temperatures, and the, and the blue line is ice cores. Then they didn't have the thermometers way back then, and that's how we get the, ice te the, the temperatures using ice cores. But uh, for those of you who, who doubt it, the science is real. Um, now, the IPCC has documented these temperature increases and how they've already affected the, the planet and that we're headed for more changes, including uh, the continuing rise of global mean temperatures. Land temperatures will increase faster, um, exceeding ocean temperature increases. But when the ocean heats up, we're really in deep doo-doo. Um, mean sea level will rise as the polar, polar ice caps melt. That will change the current of the Gulf Stream. Uh, there'll be greater precipitation in some parts of the world and drought in others. And there's the potential for abrupt nonlinear changes as we cross certain thresholds. Um, for instance, uh, when the permafrost melts, it's already started to melt and release methane and other greenhouse gases. So here's a little pie chart of the distribution of the greenhouse gases that we have so far. There's carbon, carbon dioxide, uh, methane, which is 24 times or 25 times more potent in terms of heat trapping potential than carbon, and nitrous oxide, about 300 times more potent at trapping heat. So it's as if carbon had one pocket for holding heat, methane had 25 to hold heat, and then we've got 300 pockets full of heat on a molecule of nitrous oxide. And then there are these fluorinated gases, which I'm not really going to talk about today. And just to give you a sense of where we're headed, or where we've been with average daily demand for crude oil, it's going up in the world. But I, I can talk about the other things later, these other fuels and if, it, later in the evening if you want to. So my focus today is on the role of fuel use in the post-9-11 wars and war in general. So in 2011, David Petraeus said, energy is, is the lifeblood of our warfighting capabilities. Its key tactical and strategic value is allowing for mobility and power projection. And this has long been the case. So in November 1620, armed pilgrims came ashore in Provincetown, what is in, in what is now uh, called Cape Cod, in Massachusetts, where I'm from, in uh, Shalope, which, had, uh, which was a masted vessel with oars. So we're arm power and wind power. That's how we got around. 
then the U.S. military's dependence on fossil fuels began in the 19th century with the use of coal for ships and railways, which became important in the Civil War. And the British, of course, were also quite dependent on coaling stations for their vast fleets to maintain their colonial presence and for keeping certain colonies. So they had coaling stations in Simonstown, Diego Garcia eventually, Botany Bay, Australia, and so forth. And then what you see in the upper right is the Navy's, the U.S. Navy's Great White Fleet, which went sailing around the world at the behest of President Roosevelt to show American power, and that, you see, is coal, is powering that. It's, it's a white fleet with black smoke. So the Pentagon shifted to um, oil, or what was then the War Department shifted to oil in the early 20th century um, during World War I and World War II with diesel for, for trucks and so on and aircraft and tanks. And then the oil embargoes that happened um, in, this, in World War II are quite important. And there were also attacks on petroleum production. And what you see on the right-hand side is an attack uh, on petroleum for the access. So all of this goes on pretty well, sort of the incorporation of oil and the, the use of oil in the industrial economies, quite fine until 1956 when um, Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal, which had been controlled by Britain and France, and the world became anxious about oil that was being transited through the canal. Then, uh, through the late 1960s, the U.S. could supply the bulk of its fossil fuel needs with continental supplies. Uh, oil was at an affordable price. Then the U.S. began to import large quantity of, quantities of oil in the late 1960s. Then they became increasingly concerned about world oil supplies in the 1970s for various reasons. For one, the 1973 Arab oil embargo, um, which reduced Arab, um, oil supplies by about 14%. And this led the United States to create the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in 1975. Then in 1979, of course, there was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and a hostage crisis in Iran, and the fear in the United States that the Soviets would somehow um, work with others to shut down um, the Strait of Hormuz you know, or control oil. So in, in 1979, the United States created the Rapid Deployment Force to defend U.S. interests in the Middle East, including oil. And so then uh, President Carter announced the Carter Doctrine in his State of the Union address almost 40 years ago, just over 40 years ago on January 20th, 1980. He said, any attempt by a foreign power to gain control of the Persian Gulf and surrounding areas would be regarded as an attack on the vital interests of the United States and would be stopped by all or any means necessary, including the use of force. Then in 1983, that became uh, what, uh, was what is now called CENTCOM, Central Command. So then, in, speeding up, when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, the Bush administration reiterated the Carter Doctrine, 
uh, with the National Security Directive number 45 saying, again, U.S. interest in the Persian Gulf are vital. We're going to defend friendly states in the region. And um, in 1991, the United States, of course, kicked Iraq out of Kuwait, not only because the Iraqis had violated the sovereignty of Kuwait, but of, but of course to defend the oil interests and any threat that the Iraqis might pose to Saudi oil. So during that war, the Iraqis destroyed Kuwaiti oil fields and the U.S. bombed Iraqi oil refineries. Which gets us to today. The U.S., of course, uh, is the global military power, spending about a third of all military spending. There were some reductions in the Cold War, but um, the U.S. still has about 800 bases and installations. And the post-9-11 global war on terror has operations in between 80 to 90 locations in the world. And I can't tell you exactly the number because we, you know, most people don't know the exact number. They don't even know the exact number in Congress where they ought to know. So this map is produced by Stephanie Savell, who works in the Cost of War Project, and you can find it on our website. All of these activities and the 800 bases require fuel and an infrastructure to move it around on secure lines of communication. So this is a map that's produced by the Defense Logistics Agency telling us where their fuel depots are, basically. And what you also see up here are the commands. Um, Central Command, I live in NORTHCOM, you are in European Command. In case you didn't know, there's specific command and so on. So oil is the lifeblood. So U.S., uh, this is a, a figure that shows U.S. energy consumption by the government, and the top line is total government consumption. The, the dotted line below that is DOD fuel consumption. And what do you see about that? What do you see? Say again? Most of it is military. And anything else? Right. So it pushes U.S. US DOD consumption of fuel and, and all energy is basically the story. It's 77 to 80% of all U.S. government uh, energy consumption. Um, you see that dominance again here in this slide. And this is a snapshot from uh, 2016. You see, again, the, the DOD is the bulk of the energy consumption. And what's the big one? It's jet fuel. <coughs> right? And the, the other big one is uh, diesel. No surprise there. So focusing again on fuel consumption, I was able to calculate the U.S. fuel consumption from 1975 to 2018 using Department of Energy data because the DOD does not release its data. 
And you see here is the dominance of jet fuel and then diesel again, but then the other special fuels that are used by the, by the military. I'm not looking at electricity right now. I'm just looking at petroleum. Okay, so here we see what the Defense Logistics Agency does. They, produce they, they purchase petroleum products, and here's what they're, they're purchasing. So jet fuel is the blue dotted line. The top line is total purchases, and then on the lower line is diesel. I'm just showing you the major ones here over time. So basically, that's the previous slide shown over time. And here's another view of DOD energy use. So vehicles and equipment are the green bars. Okay, that's the, them getting around. The orange and blue bars are facilities. So what you get from that is that Installations are about 30% of fuel use. And from here you can see that the um, installation usage is roughly shared equally by the services, Air Force, Army, Navy. Then operational uses are about 70% of the total. Okay, so, so now you're getting the picture. So DOD fuel use drives U.S. government fuel use. Jet fuel is the main driver of operational use. So jet fuel drives is, is the bulk of U.S. energy use, U.S. military energy use. Okay, then you might ask yourself, you look at, notice how the purple here are planes, right? That, why is jet fuel so important to the story? Well, because airplanes are very thirsty. And if you look at the column that says fuel consumption gallons per nautical mile, the second column from the right, you see that we're talking gallons per mile, not miles per gallon. <laughs> so these are some calculations I did for aircraft that I particularly am interested in, the B-2, the new F-35, the older A-10, and the aerial refueling tanker, the KC-135, and then this, the KC-46A, the new one. And you see that the newer planes, like the F-35 and the KC-46A, are more fuel efficient. Still gallons per mile, but relatively fuel efficient. This will become more interesting to you later. So then using raw data, again, I calculated greenhouse gases from uh, the uh, military from the 1975 period to the 2018, the most recent year I could get data. And you see your three lines. The, the top line is total. The um, orange line in the middle is non-standard emissions. And by non-standard emissions, we mean activities related with, to combat. Okay? 
this is Department of Energy data. They didn't say operational, but it's the equivalent of the DOD's operational use. Okay, and then the bottom line is installations, basically, and permanent stuff. Okay, so then what I wanted to find out about was um, the most recent period. We'll just focus in on that, and you can see here from the post-9-11 wars what the energy consumption is. So I'm going to go back a slide and just ask you, what do you see here? What jumps out at you about Pentagon fuel use from 1975 to the present? What is it that springs to mind? Probably a couple different observations here that could be made. Yes? Okay, go ahead. Let Kim say again. Uh, you can see a spike after 2001. Yes, that's right. Anything else? Declined. Yeah. Anything else? Overall declining after when? When? The Gulf War. Declines after the 1991 Gulf War. Yeah. Anything else? Right. So 1975, it goes after the U.S. gets out of Vietnam, it's down. The U.S. is mostly out by then anyway. Um, so, right, you see, you see basically it's tracking war which shouldn't be surprising. And what do you see from 1991 to 2000, you see a peace dividend that is a greenhouse gas dividend. Okay, that's what we're talking here, a greenhouse gas dividend. When the U.S. closes its bases following the end of the Cold War, hundreds are closed, and there are fewer um, war games joint operations, emissions go down. Kind of interesting. And you can see, you could, if, you did, if this is all you had, you could tell when the U.S. was at war. You wouldn't have to know any history. Okay, none of that should be surprising in a way, but I just showed what I kind of knew. And in here, Forbes magazine did me a favor and used my data to produce this chart, which suggests how big these emissions are relative to nations. The United States would be, if it were a country, around the 50th country in terms of, of greenhouse gas emissions in any one year. And its emissions are larger than the countries that you see on the screen there, Morocco, Peru, Sweden, Hungary, uh, they're also larger than Portugal. And if you look at this, um, you can see how uh, you can see U.S. total emissions. A small part of that is the military's emissions, but you can see that the U.S. military's emissions, if you know it's the, about the same as Portugal's, you can see what countries are roughly the same. So... Um, then I wanted to look at the post-9-11 period and figure out emissions for the war period from uh, 2001 to the 2018. And so I did some calculations. Um, we can get into the how to do the math if you're interested in at the end of this talk. But basically, this is what I show. A good portion of the total Pentagon emissions, but obviously not all of them, are war-related. So there's total DOD emissions in the... Um, one column, and then war-related emissions are a portion of that. Uh, 
Okay, and then here we have another chart uh, that might be interesting to you, which is greenhouse gas emissions for vehicles and equipment. Again, they track the surges in the Cold War when the U.S. is fighting the 1991 Gulf War, and you see uh, the major greenhouse gas dividend of the end of the Cold War. Unsurprisingly, you see them also tracking U.S. entry into the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then the troop surges in Iraq in 2007 and Afghanistan from 2010 to 2012. And there are some things I did not estimate, and it's kind of important to understand what I didn't estimate. I didn't estimate emissions caused by U.S. military industry, which is about 15%, depending on how you count it, of total industry. I didn't uh, estimate the emissions caused by direct targeting of petroleum, which has occurred in the most recent uh, parts of the wars, but also at the beginning. I didn't look at the emissions by other belligerents, like the U.K. or Italy or anybody else who was fighting the 50 or so other countries fighting with the U.S. Um, I didn't look at the uh, energy consumed when you put, use cement to replace what you've just destroyed. Nor did I look at emissions of other gases like um, from fire suppression. Those are actually greenhouse gas relevant, but I, I didn't have that information. Okay, so now we're going to move to part three of the talk, which is how the Pentagon thinks about fuel use and climate change. So how do they think about it? They have been aware of this issue for decades, and what you see here is the cover of a paper called Global Ch Climate Change Implications for the United States Navy, published uh, at the Naval War College in 1990, 30 years ago. It's already in the first page raising many of the concerns that the Navy is still talking about, namely operational challenges posed by rising sea levels, but there are also concerns about the institutional overwhelm that could come as the military has to respond to natural disasters and the potential for climate war. They know about this. But then they decide to do nothing. And what you see here is what happens at the Kyoto Protocol. When it's negotiated, the U.S. says, um, pushes very strongly not to have bunker fuels and fuels related to multilateral operations in the treaty. So they're left out of accounting for Kyoto, which is the first time that there'll be these national accounting mechanisms. And the U.S. Undersecretary of State Stuart Eisenstadt said, we took special pains, and I, I want to read this because it's so interesting. We took special pains working with the Defense Department and with our uniformed military, both before and in Kyoto, to fully protect the unique position of the U.S. as the world's only superpower with global military responsibilities. We achieved everything they outlined as necessary to protect military operations and our national security. At Kyoto, the parties took a decision to exempt key overseas military activities from any emissions targets, including exemptions of bunker fuels used in international aviation and maritime transport, 
and from emissions resulting from multilateral operations such as self-defense, peacekeeping, and humanitarian relief. And then he, he goes on to say, this exempts our national targets, not only multilateral operations expressly authorized by the UN Security Council, such as Desert Storm or Bosnia, but importantly also exempts other multilateral operations, such as Grenada, that really big event that we all talk about. Okay, this exemption expired in 2015, but basically nobody reports. The countries are not reporting their military emissions. So now I want to talk about the other way they think about this, which is their focus on operational vulnerability. And this is a concern that fuel not be subject to any delay or um, uh, reductions in supply. So they want to be now unleashed from the tether of fuel, according to Jim Mattis. And what you see here is one of the first aerial refueling operations, uh, a Curtis JN4 with a five-gallon can of gasoline. And now our current, I think, uh, I don't even know, is that a B2 being refueled? But fuel is vulnerable in transit, and in fact, um, if it's transported over land, it can be attacked as it was when it transited from Pakistani ports to U.S. bases in Afghanistan. And this is a chart of the number of attacks. There were hundreds of attacks on transports, which can cause and did cause many deaths of the people transporting the fuel through the war zone. So the, then the idea was you want to reduce the number of uh, these tankers which are transporting the fuel so that you reduce the risk. And so what they did was they, um, the Marines in particular, worked on finding ways to reduce fuel use by tents and trucks, and they got very inventive with solar panels, and here you see some of their really exciting work on uh, mini solar panels and putting them up in distant locations. And then they also have put thermostats in tents so that you don't have to have people go outside to turn up or down the heat or the air conditioning. That These things are automated. This is really innovative stuff. It's kind of like this building, right? They're sort of making sure that it all happens automatically, sort of taking human decision-making out of the loop and making things more, more light. Okay, so... They've also got, in 2016, uh, they did what was called the Great Green Fleet Initiative. Remember the Great White Fleet? So 2016 is the Great Green Fleet, where the Navy took a carrier group around the world on a 50-50 biofuel, diesel fuel mix. But, of course, the carrier is nuclear. It's the 10 ships that go with the carrier that are using the 50-50 mix. All very exciting. Um, then we see that the, this concern since the 1990s is, is escalating in the Pentagon. And here are a couple of 
things that the Pentagon's concerned about. One is uh, the Navy is extremely concerned about the opening up of the Arctic. You've probably heard a lot about this. And here we see a, a nuclear sub as it's popped up, but there's no ice to break through. Trust me, they can break through the ice if they wanted, but it's so thin now or non-existent that they don't have to. Um, and you also see lots of reports that come out regularly about climate change, even under the Trump administration. Then we see a recent report says about 70 bases are already feeling climate-related impacts. So, so again, the concerns are um, operational and then bases. Right here, and what we see is the uh, up here the flooding at Ofit Air Force Base, which is where Strategic Air Command is, in 2019. And there's Newport Naval Station, which is vulnerable as well. And the reports are getting more urgent in tone. For example, um, the Rear Admiral. I'm sorry, just plain old Admiral, Samuel Locklear, who was then uh, chief of the U.S. Pacific Command, said in 2013, climate change caused instability is probably the most likely thing that's going to happen that will cripple the security environment, probably more likely than the other scenarios we often talk about. So they're, they moved from operational and base considerations, now they're thinking about war. They've been thinking about war for a while, and so then we get to the national security strategy of the Obama administration, which says climate change is an urgent and growing threat to our national security, contributing to increased natural disasters, refugee flows, and conflicts over basic resources like food and water. The present-day effects of climate change are being felt from the Arctic to the Midwest. Increased sea levels and storm surges threaten coastal regions, infrastructure, and property. In turn, the global economy suffers, compounding the growing cost of preparing and restoring infrastructure. And then he concludes this thought by saying, America is leading efforts at home and with the international community to confront this challenge. Okay, that's the 2015 national security strategy. In 2017, when Mattis, who's now at that point Secretary of Defense, says climate change is impacting stability. So he's keeping this going through the first part of the Trump administration. Then the Trump administration decides to erase climate change at the DOD as well as they can. It disappears from the national security strategy. And um, Congress writes a letter signed by, I think, 100 members protesting this. and. Um, they don't change the strategy, but they, they put the government on notice that it should be part of our national concerns. So, notably, the military is, in other words, pushing the securitization of climate change, and the journalists in, and others in Washington, D.C., Beltway consultants, for example, are promoting this view. So here, a sample of the books. Gwyn Dyer is British. Um, his book, Climate Wars, was 2008. That's the earliest of this genre. 
but there's also climatic cataclysm, global warming, climate wars, and most recently, Michael Clare's book, All Hell Breaking Loose, where he concludes the book by arguing that the Pentagon should be leading the charge on making sure that we get out of the trouble, the fix that we're in. So what the military's not, uh, I'm sorry, you also see uh, this in popular culture. Here we see Tank Girl from 1995, which is a really funny, if you like this kind of movie, about um, water and power controlling all the water. And this is, I think it's Andy McDowell, or Rod, Rod, one of the McDowell brothers, sucking the water literally out of a person because water is so scarce. And there you see uh, Charlize Theron in Mad Max, Fury Road. where um, she's obviously, this is prior to her, her role in Bombshell as Megyn Kelly in 2019. So she's missing an arm. You can see that here, the great Charlize Theron. So basically, the, the uh, culture is securitizing climate change as well. That's what I'm saying. It's not just the, the national security elites and the people in the Pentagon. So what you see is an argument that Climate change causes conflict, right? These conflicts, and they talk about as even nuclear war could come from climate, climate conflicts, especially between India and Pakistan as water becomes scarce. And you see the argument that it will also lead to migration, which will lead to conflict. What they're not thinking about is their role, the military's role in the climate crisis, nor whether they need to keep defending the Persian Gulf. So the U.S. has basically a permanent presence in the Persian Gulf, and they've got one or two aircraft carriers there at any one time. There's something going to and fro almost all the time. There's some, some aircraft carriers circulating, right? So it's a constant presence. It hasn't been rethought. So from Carter Doctrine to Bush Doctrine to the post-9-11 wars, no change. But as I show in the bottom, U.S. dependence on imports from the Persian Gulf oil is declining. So still they're defending an asset that may not need to be defended much longer. Uh, nor is the U.S. reconsidering how it makes war. The U.S. has, for example, uh, attacked oil infrastructure in Iraq and Syria in its most recent operation, Inherent Resolve, which is ongoing to keep refined fuel and indirectly revenue for oil out of the hands of ISIS. So this entailed about 1,600 total strikes of the thousands of strikes the U.S. did from October 2014 to the end of 2016, attacking oil fields and wellheads, derricks, pumps, refineries, tanks, tanker trucks, drums, pipelines, mobile drilling rigs, and gas and oil separation plants. That's a lot of strikes. Now, the, the legal argument is that it's like when the United States, even though it's attacking oil, it's like when the United States burned cotton in the Civil War, which is a very cool analogy if you want to go back to the source. Um, so... Academics are now also talking about this in a 
kind of different way. Uh, here's up on the upper left is a uh, illustration from my article on this. Then there's a couple of new articles that have come out about energy in the military and so on. So there's more interest in this lately among academics. But closing in now on the conclusion of my talk, I want to ask, we zeroed in, we're big picture, zeroed in, now I'm going to come back out. I want to ask, which way are we going to go? Is it Mad Max, Fury Road, or something else? So I, I'm going to just for a moment entertain the hell in the handbasket view, all hell breaking loose, borrowing from Michael Clare, who's borrowing from the DOD, who's borrowing from some Germans in World War I. So we already see increased anxiety and fear leading to escapism, nihilism, depoliticization in some cases. We see some increased migration and I argue the rise of nativism and populism. Then we see uh, new barriers, um, including uh, life, lifeboat England notions and the, on the southern border or the Italians' refusal to take in Syrian refugees. So no help for climate refugees because basically they're economic refugees. Um, no help. Now, is this is climate war inevitable, however? And you know, Catherine Mock has an article, Climate as a Risk Factor for Armed Conflicts, that appeared in Nature, where she and others looked at whether or not climate change was a driver for war. And what they found is that um, it's, war is not inevitable. And in fact, in previous conflicts, or pre previous situations where there's climate stress, people don't necessarily go to war. What helps them not go to war is state capacity and the culture of the people in the place. So what you see is climate change causes increased risk of violence, but that risk doesn't necessarily translate into actual violence. Now, how is climate change changing us, if it is? If not war, some psychologists, religious leaders, and economists are arguing that we already are or must undergo a transformation. So the political scientist Oren Young has asked, um, well, reform do it. Will the reform of international institutions do it? Or do we need a transformation of those institutions? Young says we need transformation. Because they're not adept enough for the scale and the complexity of the challenges. Naomi Klein says uh, this changes everything, meaning capitalism is not good enough. Capitalism itself has to change, and we have to embrace a Green New Deal. And Joanna Macy in her work on active hope, Macy is a psychologist, argues that we need transformation and that we're in the midst of what she calls the great turning. So you see this 
Now, instead of all that, those war books, they're actually now dominated in the media by these books that tell a different story, a story of how humans are adapting and transforming their cultures, economies, energy systems, cities, and their relationship with the climate and with nature. So I began to wonder, thinking back to some of my earlier work, are we in a moment of, of change that is akin to a like, or, or rather something like what happened with the end of slavery and the end of colonialism? Is it the case that we're in a, a large-scale normative change? Now, this um, book on the left by David McDermott Hughes is arguing that the oral, oil system is morally wrong. But he's not alone. There are lots of people who are saying that the current system is morally wrong, not just dysfunctional in terms of being sustainable, but a crime. So I'm asking myself, is it the case that we've got something going on like the end of slavery and colonialism and that we're in a moment of deconstruction where old institutions and practices are denormalized and delegitimized? And in a moment of reconstruction, the great turning, the transformation, and then what we see is institutionalization of these changes in systems, and then the feedback to more change. Is that the process? This would be kind of a virtuous process instead of the world going to hell in the handbasket. So we've got these possible realities. Now this analysis, which is occurring among economists, philosophers, political scientists, psychologists, is also occurring in the religious sphere. In 2015, Pope Francis published Laudato Si, which translates roughly into our, our home, our common home. And he says, for all our limitations, gestures of generosity, solidarity and care, solidarity and care cannot help, cannot but well up within us since we were made for love. Then he says later in, the, in this, yet all is not lost. Human beings, while capable of the worst, are also capable of rising above themselves, choosing again what is good and making a new start, despite their mental and societal conditioning. We are able to take an honest look at ourselves, to acknowledge our deep dissatisfaction, and to embark on new paths to authentic freedom. Now, if you've read Laudato Si, it's... It's as if a Marxist has inhabited Pope Francis's body because it's a ruthless critique of everything. Lenin, a ruthless critique of everything. And the calling forth of a transformation that begins with a spiritual transformation in our relationship to nature and each other, and then taking on obligations to help the poor. So justice is part of this. Okay. Well, mind blown. Then we move on. We also see that there are movements, and I'm talking all over the world, for eco-villages. There's transition towns. The first transition town is in, in southern England called Totnes. And there are many others. And they see themselves as sort of remaking everything about their the social relationships, their worldview, their economy, and their relationship uh, to nature. So 
that's the Gaia education project, the big wheel. And then um, Karen Litvin has a book on eco-villages, which looks at a number of eco-villages all over the world. She's traveling to see how these people are working out their relationships. And, and she's arguing that, that these eco-villages that she's examining have you know, uh, a shared view that, we're, that life is a web and it's sacred, that this is a, we're in a crisis, that we can change, but it has to be from bottom up, which is what the transition town movement is also arguing. And we have to say yes to certain things rather than saying no. Okay, this is global civil society at work. Okay, it's a, it's a change of that magnitude. Right, remember the global civil society literature? Well, get it out again. Okay, and uh, let me just close with the best person to close with, the Dalai Lama. <laughs> he says, in our present state of affairs, the very survival of humankind depends on people developing concern for the whole of humanity, not just their own community or nation. This is in 1998, right? The reality of our situation tells us to act and think more clearly. Narrow-mindedness and self-centered thinking may have served us well in the past, but today will only lead to disaster. Thank you. All right, so I have a message of hope at the end, that's for sure. Um, we can now, we've got about half an hour uh, for uh, questions. Um, should I take three at a time, perhaps? Or? See how hard they are. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, we'll, we'll see how hard they are. Um, I'm going to start uh, right at the back, the woman in the hat. Just wait for the microphone, and if you could just introduce yourself and tell us uh, where you're from. Hi, hi there. Um, my name's Kim Willis. I'm a journalist and also I work in the commercial aviation industry and sustainability. And I, w I was really struck by this argument around um, the hidden costs of war. And I wondered, are there also hidden costs, uh, carbon costs of peace? Because the graph you showed about how uh, you know, during a war, there are carbon costs, but after the war, they reduce. If you overlaid that with what happens in commercial aviation, for instance, um, or indeed any, a number of other areas, there are increased carbon emissions from people flying again, people immediately having babies again, that kind of thing. And I'm wondering about the relative magnitude of those two costs. So, yeah, that's my question. Okay, okay the gentleman right there. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Um, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm a former law enforcement intelligence analyst. Um, are there any indications in the last few years from the use of aviation fuel and diesel, obviously for air and um, maritime forces, uh, that increased activity in dealing with the Chinese build-up, which is essentially an air and, above all, maritime build-up in the South and East China Seas, is coming into the figures for consumption because the distances are so huge. And a point of information, can we, can we get confirmation, and I presume the answer is uh, yes, that uh, Chinese and Russian figures are rather very difficult to get hold of. Thank you. <laughs> right, just beside, yeah, that's fine, yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name's Tom Berger from the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office here in London. Um, 
really interesting talk. Thank you for that. I just had a sort of question on, um, to my sort of eye, the justification uh, for the defence and deterrence posture that is kind of operated by the US and by other powers. Is say again? Can you say that again? So the justification, the kind of uh, the reason, the raison d'etre for the uh, defence and deterrence posture that is adopted by the US and by other powers is largely that it prevents war, that it's a successful deterrent and it sort of limits conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and again, sort of related to that peace dividend question, I just wondered if you had any observations on um, whether anyone has weighed, yes, the costs of operating a deterrence posture like this in the way that you have done today, but versus the costs of kind of like breakouts of conflict and war and localized regional tension, which might result were that posture not in place, which, which does more damage to the climate, having a sort of effective deterrence posture or not having one? Thank you. Do you want to take those? Yeah, I'll do that. Okay. Okay, so the carbon costs of peace. Um, your intuition is right that there is a, uh, you know, just like after a recession, more economic activity when wars end. And uh, the question would be, as you asked, how does that compare with the greenhouse gas emissions during war? I haven't done the math on that, but I'm, I'm guessing that um, it, because of the ripple effects of the military industry, that it's probably the case that um, in, there's a, a reduction immediately in greenhouse gas emissions, but then that it may wash out. I don't know, though. I haven't done the math on that. And I'm, I'm not sure I, I know how to do that. Okay, then the question about aviation fuel in um, the Pacific and maritime, right. So all of the fuel use is in there in my calculations, all of it. So it, it, I, I didn't break it out by war zone. Um, th there is someone who possibly could break it out by war zone or by command. Um, it's probably less than 20%. But I had a figure in there that, that might give us a clue. And um, yes, I, I would suspect it's more difficult to get the Chinese and Russian figures. I haven't looked. Most countries are not reporting their, their, their uh, military, their defense emissions, because they're not required to. And then the question about um, is, could deterrence actually be uh, a lighter footprint in terms of greenhouse gas emissions? Probably. That is, presumes it's um, effective. But, but the question I was raising earlier was, what's the force posture? Right? If the force posture presumes, for instance, for the United States, 12 aircraft carriers forever and ever, and they all have these 10 surface ships, floating along behind them and with them and protecting them and providing them with things. Um, and we're moving up. We're, we're getting more aircraft carriers and more surface ships. For power projection, which is not deterrence, then I think that the answer is that, that it's a more greenhouse gas intensive um, model. In other words, the United States as an imperial power is not engaged in self-defense and deterrence. It's engaged in force projection and, um, as the DOD used to say, do total domain awareness and control. They want to control everything everywhere all the time. They want to know what, what's going on everywhere all the time. And they can't, so they have to make priorities, but 
But the force posture is such that the U.S. could fight, they say, two to two and a half wars simultaneously. It's not about simple deterrence. It's about war fighting. So, so that's where I'm, I, uh, I go with that. Now, what if, what if um, forces were reduced and then war breaks out? Then, then we're talking greenhouse gas intensivity. Yes, war is very greenhouse gas intensive. I hope I've answered those questions adequately. Okay. All right, we'll go uh, more on um, uh, sort of, well, I'll start at, um, on this side, actually, there's, uh, yeah, uh, she's got her hand up next to the woman. Yeah, thanks. Yep. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, I'm Lucy, I'm a civil engineer. Um, I was just curious, um, I've heard a lot lately about the Trump administration being keen to tap into American fuel reserves, um, and I was curious what the reduction um, of military emissions would be through doing this and if it would be beneficial for American oil reserves to be used rather than ones in the Gulf. Okay. All right. Um, uh, at the back, right at the back there, yeah. Uh, Bob Ward from the Grantham Research Institute here at LSE. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the uh, impact of the Trump administration on other countries' defense, and particularly NATO members. Um, have you looked at the extent to which the Trump administration is preventing NATO members from considering how climate change is a threat multiplier and affecting the national security and defense of NATO members. I also want to just urge caution about the paper on the links between climate change and conflict. That's mainly based on our experience so far. If we get to three degrees of warming by the end of the century, which is where we'll be even if we deliver on Paris, we will be not just outside historical precedents, we'll be outside human evolutionary experience. It will be three million years since we had temperatures that high. So I'm rather skeptical of anybody saying there's no, that that will be fine and we won't have war as a result of it. Another one at the back in a blue T-shirt. You showed how it's such a huge driver is jet fuel to these figures. And in commercial aviation, the, the driver, the downward pressure on the use of jet fuel is, is um, reducing your costs. And, you know, you see airlines um, bringing in new aircraft to reduce their costs, uh, to reduce their operating costs. Right. Is, is this a driver for U.S. defense or is there just so much money sloshing around that there's no actual incentive to reduce uh, costs? Do you want to take those? Yeah. Okay. I'll start with the last one first. The U.S. military has been experimenting with biofuels in their aircraft. They are interested in cost because they do have to live within a $738 billion budget annually. <laughs> and you want to be able to buy, you know, whatever you need. Um, $738 billion. But there's only so much allocated for fuel. But the real concern is transporting that fuel. It's not about, um, if you can get it there, that's great. But you, you don't want to have to transport more than you need. Um, there is an argument for drones that says because they use much less fuel, they're better. Um, among other things, you know, obviously they use less fuel because there aren't pilots on board and so on. Um, they're just lighter. Uh, I don't think that the 
cost is the main driver. I think it's these other operational concerns. And there is work done by the RAND Corporation about how to change the way aircraft are uh, flown, not just the, the aircraft themselves, because a lot of this is, is fixed, right? These are fixed pieces of equipment. You've just spent 13 million or 100 million to get a plane, and you're not going to you know, get another one for another 20 years. So what you might do is you might change the way you fly it. And they're looking at that. Um, less taxiing, less idling, they're all into that same stuff that we're supposed to be doing, less idling. Okay, then um, climate change and conflict. Yes, all bets are off after a certain point. And that's why what's really interesting that's happening with global civil society is they're very aware, people are very aware that all bets are off so they're going super local um, in their work about community. Look, there's, there's no question that we, we can't just meet Paris. We've got to draw down immediately with carbon and methane and nitrous oxide. So methane and nitrous oxide are, are a lot of that's coming from agriculture. So if you don't eat low on the food chain, maybe consider doing that, right? But... But clearly, uh, we're headed, you know, if the, projection, the worst projections come true, and in, in, in all cases, the IPCC projections have been conservative, then it's a very different planet in, if not our lifetimes, the lifetimes of the students in this room or, um, you know, my kid. Um, and then about the impact on other countries. I, I think that there's something strange going to happen. When President Trump says something, the DOD basically ignores them, they ignores him. And you see it. I mean, you can see they're not going to implement, uh, you know, his, his trans ban. So they, they stall, they slow walk the trans ban. Um, they they uh, kept putting out climate change things. They squashed somebody in the National Security Council but other climate change information came out, and the, the DOD never stopped their, their work on um, uh, operational vulnerability. They just keep going. I don't know that any other militaries pay attention to him either, but I don't really know the answer to that question. And then the last question I'll come to is about strategic reserves. And there's, there are a lot of reserves. I think it's a 1,000... A trillion barrels, a billion barrels? I can't remember exactly the number of barrels in the reserve. It's, uh, it's a cushion that, that's in case the United States all of a sudden had all of uh, its oil imports halted, they would use the reserve. Or if prices got so high because of a constriction in supply, they wanted to keep the prices down. It's to prevent you know, people fighting at the pump, gas pump, essentially. And um, that is good, probably for three to six months, depending on how it's used, from what I understand. Uh, is it better to use local supplies rather than, than uh, sending ships out to protect oil tankers so that they can transit that back to the U.S.? Yes. I think that's so. But better to transition to other ways of getting around so that you're less vulnerable in general. You, you need less. We can't burn this oil. Trust me, we can't. It, it should not. We need to stop. So 
um, I, I would think rather than use the st strategic reserve maybe um, for that, maybe use it to create plastic later <laughs> if that's what we need. Right, there was a, a question right at the back, a colleague right at the back um, against the wall. There. Yeah. Thank you. It's a long way from Totnes to the Pentagon. Um, if civil society is to have a change on state security and defense policy, yeah. uh, it's likely to take a long time. Um, but the need is very urgent. Therefore, what is the point of talking about civil society? Um, I'm Peter Wilson from the IR department. From where? The IR department, LSE. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a colleague. Right, yeah. right in the center here. Can you see he's got right in the two, both next to each other. I'll take those two. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Alex from UCL. Uh, so you talked about how uh, increasingly the growing amount of aircraft carriers uh, and other forms of high-emitting uh, vehicles are going to potentially escalate and lead to more emissions. Uh, but that doesn't uh, I guess factor in how technological changes might be changing that. So are things like the rolling out of drone warfare, does that lead to lower emissions in warfare or uh, is that still going to kind of increasingly lead to things uh, escalating? Okay, you can just write right next to him, that's fine, yeah, and then we'll come forward. Your talk was very interesting uh, in terms of um, the figures on uh, military uh, implications for CO2 emissions. W just a, a quick question. What was the comparison between the military and the total U.S. Uh, CO? I, wasn't, I didn't have a feel for the sort of proportion, you know, how much is related to the U.S. government, and how much is related to the whole society. And secondly, you had a chart on international comparisons which seemed to show Morocco was surprisingly close to the U.S. And I, I DOD. Couldn't, I couldn't understand the, okay. where Morocco was coming in and uh, quite so close. So how are you making those calculations? Yeah. All right. You going to throw another one in there? Okay. I'll, I'll just start with that while I find it. Okay, so U.S. military emits more CO2 than many countries, total emissions. Okay, so this is what the Forbes magazine found. They, they compared emissions to different countries that were close. Okay, so that's the U.S. military is the top line, and then those are countries. So if we looked at their military emissions, they would be a portion of that. Okay, then your other question is how much are DOD emissions in comparison to total U.S. emissions? Let's go to this one. Okay, it's a small portion of that. So I said it's roughly the same. You can look at the dot from Morocco, if you know where Morocco is, and um, I'm sure you do. Maybe the young ones who don't have to take geography anymore don't. <laughs> but um, I said there's that dot. So that's a small portion of total emissions. Now I said that I was not counting defense industries, which would take us up, I think, to about 15% of industrial emissions. I, I do have an estimate for that in my paper. I'm not confident in it, and, I'm, and I need to do more work on it. So, 
Yeah. The proportion of U.S. military um, CO2 emission compared to the total U.S. output. That's, that's what I'm talking about right now. So what was the percentage? Percentage, it's small. It's less than, uh, it's probably about 2%. 2%. I, but I'd have to, I haven't done that math in a while. I don't remember. And uh, that's a very good question. But what I'm suggesting is that military emissions drive industrial emissions of a certain type. Okay. But I, I, I think... And your international chart, the Morocco one, is that a per 100,000 military units, or is that total? Or, you know, it just wasn't clear to me that chart there. Why is Morocco so close to U.S. military? I mean, Morocco's a tiny place. Yeah, Sweden, and well, these are countries that, that have emissions. I'm, I'm not, I guess I'm not understanding something. So, okay, so this, these are military emissions. That's that, what that line is, U.S. military, the top line. Yeah. Okay. The Moroccan figures are the entire Yes. Yes. Right, the total country's emissions, right. Is that, is that clear yet? Okay. Um, all right, then. Okay, will technology lead to lower emissions? Maybe, but as you saw from the tables, it's how you use the stuff you have. It's operations that drives emissions. So you could adopt, the US military could go all with drones and that would lower jet fuel emissions, but they're not gonna because they need manned aircraft to do particular operations. So it's really about operational use. And then what's the point of talking about civil society? Um, well, I think that there are, there are really two points. One is civil society has been pushing our attention to climate change from the beginning. Okay, so civil society is what got our eyes on that problem and has kept it there. Civil society is demanding electric vehicles. Civil society is demanding changes in uh, transportation all over the world. Civil society is saying uh, we need, you know, Energy Star in the U.S. that is more efficient refrigerators and televisions and houses and so on. So civil society is changing the economics right there. So economics has been pushed. It's, it's demand that's changing the economy. And, it's, and it's, this demand is also changing policy at local levels. Okay, so you know Totnes. I know Medford, Massachusetts, where I live. And I sit on the very exciting Medford Tree Committee. And in our very exciting Medford Tree Committee meetings, we talk about planting trees and stumping and getting the budget but it's, this is happening not only in my little town, Medford, but my neighbors, Somerville, and Cambridge, and Brookline, and Arlington, and Boston. Civil society is pushing cities, and cities are leading the transition. So yes, I think civil society is important here. I could probably go on and on. And on. Okay, great. I'll start right here, this woman with the scarf. 
Thank you. Uh, Hilary Evans, Movement for the Abolition of War. Thank you for all the work that you've been doing on this. It, it's, you've been doing a great job. Um, in this country, scientists for global responsibility um, have used some of your figures, uh, and they, they estimate that 6% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from military-related activity, taking the whole range uh, right from beginning to, to uh, reconstruction after, after warfare mm -hmm. and so on. Um, so uh, we're talking about, uh, you were talking about um, civil society should demand um, more. Uh, shouldn't civil society be demanding that these military emissions are taken into account when, when, uh, uh, when we have the UN climate change conferences? You mentioned that from Kyoto through Paris, uh, including Madrid, uh, they are not taken into account. Uh, nobody talks about them, um, and that, yeah, you know, this is a significant amount where they should be included in reduction targets, surely. Okay, yeah, great, thanks. Uh, just Grace Sweatshirt. Um, Jack McDonald from the Department of War Studies, um, at King's College London. Um, do your figures include uh, military satellites or emissions involved in putting military infrastructure in space? Uh, Frank Jackson, scientist for global responsibility and former co-chair of the World Disarmament Campaign. Um, I first presented a paper with a snappier title than yours, Guns and Global Warming, uh, many, many years ago. And I've, uh, I'm very pleased you, what you have done is given me a lot more information than I had at that time. But just to follow up, my friend, friend over there mentioned the 6%, uh, which the SGR estimate of the global total, and that doesn't include a lot of collateral uh, um, things like, for example, the cost of rebuilding after conflict. Uh, concrete and cement is a very big emitter of, um, uh, of CO2, so there are all sorts of things. I, uh, um, on, the, on the question, uh, one uh, comment. Um, about the, the whole issue of the United States' role in the world, uh, it is sometimes described as a global policeman. I would suggest it, it's actually uh, more akin to a global mafia boss. Uh, and um, I, I really, we, what, but what I'm really concerned about is where we go from here in practical terms. I'm a practical guy. I want to act, although I'm probably the oldest person in this, in this room, and I, I don't know how much longer I've got, but in the years I've got, I still want to do something to prevent what seems to be a headlong dash to a real catastrophe. And uh, I think that uh, the academic analysis which we've been presented with here is, is important, but where does it we go from there? Okay. All right, call for action. I'm, I'm just going to take two more questions, and then we'll, that will be the end of them, if we can um, uh, go all together. Gentlemen at the front. Anis Nasser, I'm a retired banker and a concerned citizen of the world. Uh, would you not agree that if we are to ever make any headway concerning climate change, American foreign policy concerning unwarranted military operations around the globe should uh, stop immediately and plus 
these 800 uh, military bases they have is another form of colonialism which doesn't help and of course uh, uh, it only adds to the uh, uh, carbon, uh, carbon footprint. If these, if these uh, bases were to close, America's uh, carbon footprint come, so, come down so much. Okay, there's a, a brown Thank sweater you. right there. Yeah. Um, you talk about um, civil society going kind of uh, horizontal, um, going local. Uh, I was going to ask um, whether you think that uh, this figure might in the future be able to come down if civil society is able to transcend vertically. Uh, you know, uh, how strong is the uh, military industrial complex? What happens if, for instance, civil society manages to get Bernie Sanders elected and we have a more radical uh, White House administration? You know, uh, would that, how would that work in conflict with the, the military? All right, great. Thank, thanks very much. I think we've, we've, we've run out of time for questions, so um, okay. uh, last, uh, last round then. Sure. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my deep slides. In case somebody asked a question, I was prepared for deep slides. These are the very deep slides. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to start with the last questions, the last two questions first, about uh, changing policies. Okay, so on the left is greenhouse gas emissions by, for facilities by the DOD in 1975, when there were more than 1,000, I think there was like 1,200 installations and bases. And energy use in facilities has been cut to about half that in 2018 through the reduction in the number of bases at facilities and innovations and changes to make them greener. And you also see the, the other reason why emissions have been decreased is there's been a change in the mix of things from 1975 to the present. So we've gotten away from coal here in blue, that light blue, and on, in the current period, coal, which is very greenhouse gas intense, intensive, is not... I'm sorry, emissions intensive, is not a major driver of U.S. facilities emissions. So, yes, uh, emissions could go down if you closed bases. They could also go down if you change how the bases operate, what they're using to fuel themselves. Personally, I think we could do both. And the Pentagon itself says they've got 20% excess capacity right now at bases. Imagine a 20% reduction in bases, driving down the facilities emissions. Here's the facilities BTU use. It's, as I said, it's, been, it's gone to about half that over time. Just, just changes in the mix of fuels and the number of bases, both. Um, now, does American foreign policy need to change? There are many reasons to change U.S. foreign policy. Um, perhaps the major one is if the United States would like to maintain its status as a great power, I, I don't know that the United States needs to be the, preem the world's preeminent power, but it, it likes, you know, people like this. Um, some really like it a lot. Uh, 
this current strategy has been and continues to be counterproductive to that end in that the United States, like other great powers before it, is overspending, overreaching, creating enemies, and it can't, it's not sustainable. So that if the United States would like to maintain its standard of living and influence, then it must change its foreign policy. That would be my argument. Greenhouse gas emissions would decline as a consequence. Now, the thing that doesn't happen in Washington, D.C., I talk about how the Pentagon doesn't think about certain things, um, they definitely don't think as much as I'd like them to think, and, and neither do we in the sort of academic world, think about what would a different U.S. foreign policy look like from soup to nuts, right? And then what are the implications of that? Would we then go to five aircraft carriers and then a lot fewer surface ships? Would we have many fewer bases? This hasn't really been done since 1979. Uh, it was done by the Boston Study Group, led by Randy Forsberg, Philip Morrison, and George Rathjens, and these people sitting in Boston said, well, what if we redesign the military? What would we have? But it has, it's not really been done. But we could do that. And I think, uh, yes, there would be fewer emissions total. That would be nice. Um, it's possible. Actually, it's possible. The um, base realignment and closure process has not occurred in the last... 15 years. Now, base realignment and closure is how you got bases closed. And uh, with another administration, perhaps the Sanders administration or another administration, I think they would go back to base realignment and closure. But that depends on changes in the House. Now, both Sanders and Warren have plans which include reducing the Pentagon's emissions. And Congressman Ro Khanna of California also has contacted me, and, and I'm sure he's talking to other, they're talking to other people as well, to look for ways to reduce emissions in the Pentagon. And in this paper I have on the, the uh, Cost of War website, I have some ideas. They're, they're including some of those ideas in some of these plans, and they've come up with other ones, which are perhaps more innovative. So it's happening. Um, the question about uh, satellites, I don't know because satellites are launched by NASA. I don't have that data. I'm not up on the satellite situation. We do have Space Command. It's new. Space Command just began. I haven't seen their uniforms yet, but I'm sure they'll be nice. And they've got great patches already. I, I actually don't know if I'm going to see a breakout of their emissions. Now, the Pentagon does not release emissions by, com by um, operational emissions by command. Congress could perhaps ask for that information, and then maybe they put, put it in the National Defense Authorization Act, and they might get a version of that information for that year, and we'll see. Um, and then the question about uh, putting military emissions into the IPCC reporting. I think that's essential. Um, Deborah in the back is working on that. Raise your hand so people can talk to you later. Um, and along with Ho Chi, raise your hand, physicist. They're working on getting this as part of the process for reporting. I'm sure that all of you can all work together to get your countries to report their military emissions. 
Um, and, and then I'm going to continue to work on trying to figure out what's the larger greenhouse gas emissions associated with um, the military-industrial part of the economy. And then if, like Amazon, it sort of ripples out to everything, then I may have a very large number. Great. Wonderful. This um, uh, very wide-ranging um, lecture that included uh, civil society, climate change, war, greenhouse gas emissions, and so on, is the Pentagon, all sorts of qu uh, wonderful questions. And she spent um, almost 45 minutes answering loads and loads of questions, so very generous uh, with her time. Uh, so I'd like to thank you, Anita, very much for coming and talking to us, um, and join me in uh, thanking her.